it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show from Washington, D.C. in the Fox News Bureau here in the nation's capital. So honored, blessed, happy, thrilled, grateful to have each and every one of you here with us as the show continues to grow. Thanks to all of you. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website. GuyBensonShow.com. We post interviews, we post video clips, we post, of course, the free podcast every day. That's the whole show on demand, free of charge. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts, you've got options there. If you are new around these parts, we're especially glad that you are checking us out. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com. I write on the tip sheet. Every day. I'm a Fox News contributor over on the TV side, and then we host this program every weekday, as I mentioned. Here's the lineup on today's edition of the show. Brian Riedel will be here coming up from the Manhattan Institute. Some of his responses to just a blizzard of economic illiteracy coming from the left. I don't envy Brian because he knows so much and he's an honest broker and The sheer volume of misinformation and idiocy is overwhelming even for me. And you can almost feel his frustration oozing out from his columns, his tweets. It's just a never-ending process of correcting the record. So we'll give him a chance to do some of that here later this hour. In our next hour, Governor Glenn Youngkin, Republican, Virginia, he's going to be here. First time that we've caught up with him in a while. Looking forward to that. And then in our final hour, the happy hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern, Howie Kurtz will address the media coverage of the Buffalo Massacre, among other subjects. I'm looking forward to having that discussion based on a column that he wrote that's coming up, as I mentioned, later in today's show. As we begin, I want to play for you an exchange from the White House briefing room yesterday. It was yesterday, day one of the Corrine Jean-Pierre era in that briefing room. She is the new White House press secretary. Jen Psaki has moved on to other endeavors. And so Ms. Jean-Pierre took the reins officially. And it was a bit of a bumpy ride for her, I would say, yesterday. Now, part of this is going to be a critique of the way that she tried to answer these questions from Peter Ducey, our colleague here at Fox News. Very straightforward question. A substantive policy question, and then some of it, I think, just goes to the point that there isn't a great answer to this. You can spin things better than she did. You can be smoother and less ham-fisted than she was, but when it comes to the actual policy in question, there isn't a good response that is satisfactory because it's incoherent. So you're going to hear, we broke this up into two clips because Ducey comes back at her. But the question is 
very clear, rather elementary, and then sit back and enjoy this journey with the press secretary at the White House on her first day. And just to paint a little bit of the picture for you, since it's radio, just the audio is painful unto itself. I could barely watch the full two-minute clip. I kept pausing it and cringing and sort of looking away because I just felt like secondhand embarrassment and almost like pain because what you can't hear in the clip but you can see in the video is she is kind of frantically going through her binder of pre-written answers, and she lands on a page, I think the wrong page, and just starts reading talking points that have nothing to do with the question that Peter asks. So let's start here. Cut 13. This was yesterday. The journey begins. Uh, The president's Twitter account posted the other day, you want to bring down inflation, let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Mm -hmm. How does raising taxes on corporations reduce inflation? Um, So... Are you talking about a specific tweet? He tweeted, you want to bring down inflation, let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Look, you know, we have talked about, um, we have talked about this this past year, uh, about um, making sure that the wealthiest among us are paying their fair share. Um, and that is important to do, and uh, that is something that, uh, you know, the president has been, you know, working on uh, every day when we talk about inflation and lowering costs. And so it's very important uh, that, uh, you know, as we're seeing costs rise, uh, as we're talking about how to, you know, uh, you know, build a, a, a America that's safe, that's equal for everyone and doesn't leave everyone behind, that is an important part uh, of that as well. Oh, man. A lot of us, a lot of you knows. And look, we all have our verbal crutches. We all do it. That was a lot. You could almost see in her face in real time that she knew that she didn't know what she was talking about. And she could tell that everyone else could tell as well. This was the White House podium equivalent of like comedy flop sweat. Because that was gibberish. The question was straightforward. And she actually bought herself some time by saying, basically, can you repeat the question? Was there a specific tweet? So he read the tweet again. How is raising taxes on anyone, let alone businesses, going to reduce inflation or reduce the cost of things? If anything, it would be the opposite. If you raise the cost of doing business for companies, they're going to raise their prices and pass it down to consumers who are already getting hammered. So this is a counterproductive tax the quote-unquote rich knee-jerk policy that Democrats always pursue, even when it's obviously and particularly harmful. And she has no way of addressing it, so she starts rambling about fair share. She talks about America being safer. That was weird. And just a word salad. So then Ducey comes back. All right, maybe a mulligan here. Ms. Jean-Pierre, try again a second bite at the apple. How does raising taxes on companies reduce inflation or the costs associated with going to the store or buying gas for average people? Let's hear how she did on this next go around and cut 29. But how does 
raising taxes on corporations lower the cost of gas, the cost of a used car, the cost of food for everyday Americans? So look, I think we encourage those who have done very well right, especially those who care about climate change uh, to support a fair ta tax code that doesn't change, that doesn't charge manufacturers, workers, cops, builders, a higher percentage of their earnings, that the most fortunate people in our nation and not let this, this, that stand in the way of reducing energy costs and fighting this ex existential problem, if you think about that as an example, and to support basic collective bargaining rights as well, right, that's also important. But look, it is, you know, by not, if, without having a fair tax code, which is what I'm talking about, then all, every, like manufacturing workers, cops, you know, it's not fair for them to have to pay higher taxes than the folks that, who are, who are, who are not paying taxes at all. What the hell is she talking about? At one point she says, without having a fair tax code, which is what I'm talking about, almost as if to remind herself of what she's talking about. The question is about raising taxes on businesses and how that reduces inflation or the costs of goods and services. And she veers off into climate change? She brought up climate change out of nowhere. It's like a little bit of whiplash there. What? I actually went back to make sure that I didn't miss something in Ducey's question. Was there any reference to that? She sneaks in some collective bargaining talking points. What is she talking about? Now, the reason I play you this entire exchange is not just to embarrass her and say, oh, look, she's terrible. It was day one of her job. Now, it's a big job. You want to have a qualified person. I'm sure she was a little nervous. That's normal. This is also not her first briefing at the White House. She's been a deputy for a long time. She's done this before. Maybe just in the moment, she was a little overwhelmed. I think she will likely ease into the ebb and the flow and the rhythm of the job. She'll improve, probably. But this was an inauspicious start for Corinne Jean-Pierre because the question was quite simple and quite good. I think my number one point here is there isn't a good substantive response. Even the slickest, smoothest person could give something, a word salad that maybe sounded better than this and hit a few other buzzwords that at least seemed like it was responsive. This was unresponsive. This was as if she heard a completely different question, turned to a page at random in her binder and started reading from it because she was definitely reading word for word at times. So this is first and foremost on my part a critique of the underlying policy here. But it's also, yes, a critique of that answer. That is an objectively bad series of answers to a question about the number one issue in the country by far. The American people would be very curious to know, yeah, how does raising taxes on businesses, how is that going to help me pay less for anything? The answer is it isn't, which is why we got that very bizarre adventure there. Like, pick your own adventure. Like, oh, turn to page 46, like an R.L. Stein novel. And just start reading and hope for the best. As I said, day one, she'll improve, but not the strongest start. So I commented on social media that this was a very bad answer. And I'll give you one guess 
actually two guesses. I'll give you two guesses what the pushback was from the left because I started getting it, including from one or two blue checkmark people and other anonymous lefties. They started flowing into my timeline and into my replies. I'll give you a clue. It had nothing to do with anything that she said or I said. It had nothing to do with the issue at hand or the quality of her answer, which was the source of my criticism or my critique. That's right. I was called a racist and a sexist because Corinne Jean-Pierre is a black woman. She's a woman of color. And I guess all criticisms of anyone who fits that description automatically is racist and sexist like it is about the vice president, like it is about the most recent Supreme Court confirmed nominee. It's so predictable. It's so boring. It's such hackery. Look, racism exists in our society. It's a cancer. You seriously detract from the real thing, for example, like we saw in Buffalo, when... You apply it to everything. Any statement that you don't like, you find a way with your little, like, identity politics rubric to say, oh, well, this person with this genitalia and that skin color can't say this thing about this person because of these immutable characteristics. So let's just go with, as we just filter this out through the algorithm, racist and sexist. She's also LGBTQ, but I guess they couldn't use that one against me. Although they've tried that one too, which is fun when I'm called homophobic. It's like, who's going to tell them? But racist and sexist. I'm like, I'm sorry. Please tell me why that was a good answer. What we just all listened to together, tell me why that was a good quality answer from Corinne Jean-Pierre. Because if you think that's a good answer, then that's fascinating to me. And if you don't think that she's capable of better, that might be the, shall we say, soft bigotry of low expectations on your part. I think that she and virtually anyone else in that position could do better than that because that was a terrible answer. Just on its face, awful. I'm not saying it makes her a failure in her job doesn't make her a bad or unimpressive person. It means that my specific point about the specific exchange is correct. It has nothing to do with the color of her skin or my skin or my chromosomes or her chromosomes. It's just so lazy. So I responded to one of the people. I just trolled back at the troll. I said that her criticisms of me were shockingly homophobic. I was just doing an impression of this way of thinking, which is just, it's not really thinking. I think calling it thinking is actually giving it too much credit. It's not thinking at all. But because apparently it's racist and sexist inherently, under this circumstance, it must be very racist and sexist as well to find this clip funny. Cut 26. I often note and have talked with many of you Um, about our shared belief that our world is increasingly more interconnected and interdependent. That is especially true when it comes to the climate crisis, 
which is why we will work together and continue to work together to address these issues, to tackle these challenges, and to work together as we continue to work operating from the new norms, rules, and agreements that we will convene to work together on to galvanize global action. But Madam Vice President, are you going to work together? That's the one thing that I wasn't clear on listening to that. And how does this interact with the significance of the passage of time, I wonder? What I do know is that time is every day. Racist, sexist, can't make fun of the vice president. Ugh, exhausting. Imagine thinking that way. And you can think about that as we work together to go to commercial break, which we're going to do right now as we work to work together, together. And that time is every day. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson, back here on The Guy Benson Show. And a Fox News alert. President Biden traveling to Buffalo, New York earlier today, delivering an emotional speech after the massacre in that city. Here's part of what the president said, cut 27. What happened here is simple and straightforward. Terrorism. Terrorism. Domestic terrorism. Violence inflicted in the service of hate and the vicious thirst for power that defines one group of people being inherently inferior to any other group. A hate that through the media and politics, the Internet, has radicalized, angry, alienated, lost, and isolated individuals into falsely believing that they will be replaced, that's the word, replaced, by the other, by people who don't look like them and who are, therefore, in a perverse ideology that they possess and being fed lesser beings. I agree with much of that assessment. I think he starts to flirt with some of the blame that I think gets far too widespread and too politicized. But the act of hatred based on radicalization is undeniable in this case. And it is sickening. Back after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here with all of you. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is always free. Brian Riedel joins us now, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Brian, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, Guy. So I played in the first segment 
opening the show, the exchange yesterday between Peter Ducey, a Fox News correspondent, and the new White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, about how raising taxes from the White House perspective, uh, how raising taxes on businesses would reduce the cost of goods and services in an era of inflation. And I would say that her answers were unpersuasive, I think is the nice way to put it. They were unresponsive to the actual question. Here's part of what she said. This was like her second or third shot at it. Cut 29. But how does raising taxes on corporations lower the cost of gas, the cost of a used car, the cost of food for everyday Americans? So look, I think we encourage those who have done very well right, especially those who care about climate change uh, to support a fair tax code that doesn't change, that doesn't charge manufacturers, workers, cops, builders, a higher percentage of their earnings, that the most fortunate people in our nation and not let that stand in the way of reducing energy costs and fighting this existential problem, if you think about that as an example, and to support basic collective bargaining rights as well, right, that's also important. But Look, it is, you know, by not, if, without having a fair tax code, which is what I'm talking about, then all, every, like manufacturing workers, cops, you know, it's not fair for them to have to pay higher taxes than the folks that, who are, who are, who are not paying taxes at all. Okay, total jumble there. Uh, maybe you can help us with your expertise on how the economy works and fiscal policy. If you raise taxes on businesses... How does that bring down the cost of anything, Brian? Yeah, I mean, the the first effect of raising taxes on businesses is anything that raises business costs uh, is more likely to be passed on through higher prices to consumers. So the first order effect is higher business costs, higher prices, not lower prices. She could have made an argument that raising taxes takes money out of the economy, it reduces demand, and that will reduce inflation. But she can't say that because if she did make that argument, they'd have to point out that, A, there's not enough money that you would be taxing to make a difference. And more importantly, if that's your argument, then doesn't that negate the American Rescue Plan? Doesn't that negate Build Back Better? Doesn't that negate all of the fiscal stimulus you're doing? If you're really believing that we need fiscal policy to take out dollars, shouldn't you be abandoning Build Back Better under the same logic? So she can't say that because she would be exposing the complete contradictions of the Biden agenda. And so then you go back to all right, if you're raising business costs, wouldn't that be passed on to consumers through higher prices? Yes. And so you have higher prices in an era where prices are already too high. That's the whole problem here with inflation. And so we got we got whatever that was from the White House. What are you making, Brian, of this back and forth kind of war of words between uh, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the president, the White House and Jeff Bezos of Amazon, who seems to be speaking out on inflation and agreeing with some Democratic economists even who say, actually, yes, some of this problem that all Americans are feeling and experiencing does get laid at the feet of policies put through by this administration and the Democratic Party. Yeah, I mean, even the Federal Reserve of San Francisco, you know, which is not a conservative think tank, said that half of the inflation rate comes from the American Rescue Plan. Uh, it's, it's, it's the fiscal spending spree that's driving a lot of the inflation. And Jeff Bezos made a reference to 
the fact that the research is showing that a lot of these policies are driving inflation. And the White House responds not by addressing the substance, but by personally attacking Jeff Bezos, saying you're just a rich guy trying to protect your rich friends. I mean, it's really just unbecoming of the White House to essentially be trolling people who are making a policy argument. But that, that's where we're at right now. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the modus operandi all the time. As a matter of fact, I saw you had highlighted this on Twitter earlier today. Paul Krugman of the New York Times, who was once a respected economist, he has not been for quite some time, he has, I guess, a a new hot take out of this. This is some real galaxy brain stuff, and it's actually quite gross, actually. He tries to draw in his new column a direct line between the Laffer curve, which is like, you know, conservative economics from Art Laffer, and the massacre of the racist shooter in Buffalo. Now, I can't say that I'm surprised that Krugman would embarrass and debase himself this way. He, of course, did the whole climate of hate collective blame for the Gifford shooting that he laid on Sarah Palin baselessly. He, he loves rushing to a tragedy and blaming people that he hates immediately, no matter how badly he needs to contort himself into a pretzel to make it happen. But I just... I'm trying to figure out what goes through someone's brain where they see 10 people murdered in cold blood by a racist thug, and you think, you know what, I think I can probably use this as a way to attack the Laffer curve on like supply and demand and tax cuts, because that's what Krugman thought in his brain, then used that thinking into his fingertips and typed out some words, and then the New York Times saw it, edited it and published it. I, I just can't I can't fathom being that ignorant, that hackish, and that much of a ghoul. Yeah, when all you have is a hammer, all you see is nails. I mean, this is Krugman in a nutshell. How how can I do enough intellectual backflips to contort every news event into my preset narrative that Republicans are evil on economic policy, social policy, cultural policy, everything? His direct line that ended his op-ed is, there would argue, there is, I would argue, a direct line from the Laffer curve to January 6th to Buffalo. <laughs> Just, Anybody who submitted an op-ed to a serious publication with a line like that would be laughed at. And yet the New York Times for the last 20 years has run this sort of nonsense because this is all this is all Krugman does these days. But I can tell you working in Washington, Paul Krugman has 15 years ago surrendered any influence he has over the policy environment. Even when I worked on Capitol Hill, you just never saw Krugman cited by anyone even on the left. He is just, you know, catnip for the progressive echo chamber he's not taken yeah. seriously thankfully no, he's like he's the jennifer rubin of economics right at this point i think is the way that i would probably put it and i was trying to think of something that ridiculous like oh i can draw a direct line between 9-11 and abortion or something like that except that was the column of dana milbank in the washington post last week saying that this is like a 9-11 style event if the court overturns Roe. It's like they take outlandish brainstorms that I try to come up with to caricature their position and just run with it. Yeah, and this is, they do this because it gets rewarded. You know, 
I took a look at the Washington Post a couple days ago, and I noted that they actually run a some good conservative columnists and, and some smart columns. But if you ever look at the most the most read and most popular columns in the Washington Post, it's always the craziest. And if you read the comments underneath the Washington Post columns themselves, they're the craziest. And so you have a why would you do that to yourself, Brian? Why would you do that to yourself? It's like reading YouTube comments. Just stop. You see how the, the media ecosystem encourages this. The Washington Post, if you want to get the most clicks as possible on the Washington Post, which is how they measure success, you have to write the craziest things. That's how you get Jen Rubin. That's how you get Dana Milbank. It, the, the purpose is not to inform. It's, it's to inflame an echo chamber. Right. Uh, it's like Mark Thiessen writes a very cogent, substantive argument about something, and it's the 63rd most popular column of the week. And then Charles Blow comes out of the gate with why, you know, Clarence Thomas is a white supremacist or something like that. And it it goes to the head of the chart because everyone wants to click that and, and nod vigorously and, and comment crazy stuff. I guess that's that's what's incentivized in our politics and our media these days. And we're not immune to it, but I, I I try to be a little better than that. It's a very low bar to clear, which we try to do here on a daily basis. Brian Riedel, I want to ask you about this as well. There was a report this week about $163 billion of fraud in a single program. Give us some of the details on that and some of the context on that. Remarkable. The unemployment insurance program typically spends about $40 billion a year. During the pandemic, we spiked it up to $900 billion over two years with the whole $600 bonuses, broader eligibility, so many people unemployed. Well, the inspector general says that at least $163 billion of the $900 billion went to fraud. And in fact, it might be double or even triple that. And the numbers, the numbers, like I said, are truly remarkable. Wait, wait, hang on, if you hang want to on. put it in. A hundred, a hundred and sixty-three billion, billion out of out of nine hundred billion. That is their lowball estimate of fraud that is and the stolen minimum. money. They, they've already said in certain states they believe that a majority of the unemployment benefits were fraudulent, and if that's replicated nationally, you could they could end up concluding that a majority of the nine hundred billion went to not even just like waste or mismanagement, but outright fraud, fraudulent claims. To put the hundred and sixty-three billion dollars in context again. That's as much as we would spend in a single year on highways, transit, plus veterans' health care. That, that's just one program, one year's fraud. And, and that's the minimum number of this, this estimated fraud could pay for just the stolen money mm-hmm. at the low end of the estimate spectrum could pay for federal highways, transit, and veterans' health care combined in a normal year. That, I mean, that— that is mind-blowing. And you also wrote that you could just mail a check for, what, like $1,200 to every $1, household? $1,200 for every household um, you could have done. And, I mean, for the causes amount. are the federal government is sloppy. Um, states were running 1980s computer systems for their unemployment benefits. They weren't verifying recipients at all. They weren't doing any basic research, any basic administration. And let me add, overall... The federal government spent $6 trillion on pandemic benefits. 
Of that, they put in only $480 million into oversight. That means for every uh, $1 they spent on oversight, they spent $12,000 on benefits. And so the fraud isn't just con contained to the unemployment program. There's massive fraud in the stimulus checks, the PPP program. Overall, I mean, this could easily approach a trillion dollars in fraud because, again, only one twelve thousandth of the money went to oversight. And then they tell us that they're out of money for testing <laughs> and for therapeutics and for vaccines out of the six trillion, which just is so insulting. It's the word that I use every time I think of this story. But that's what they're out here claiming. And the big solution that they've got to all of this and everything that we've been talking about is what they really ought to have done is spent five trillion more dollars on Build Back Better in the middle of this inflation. I would love the next question. So here's I, maybe I'm just sending vibes over to Peter Ducey for the next briefing with Ms. Jean-Pierre. How would spending five trillion more dollars on Build Back Better reduce inflation? And I would love to hear the white knuckle ride of that answer from the new White House press secretary, given what she said yesterday. Brian Riedel, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, trying to keep everything sane here on the fiscal front, which is uh, a lonely battle. Uh, Brian, we appreciate it. Thanks so much, Guy. We will step aside. We will come right back. When we do, some new numbers on the border crisis, I'd call them shocking. They should be, in any normal context, absolutely shocking. But given what we've seen in recent months, you probably won't be that surprised. They're still very important, and we will reveal them to you right after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Still to come on the Guy Benson Show, Governor Glenn Youngkin, Republican of Virginia, in the next hour. Howie Kurtz later in our final hour. First, an update on immigration, and we'll try to dig in a little bit deeper on this issue tomorrow, perhaps with a guest. But I want to bring you some of these new numbers that were reported by our colleague Bill Malugin based on new court documents. The April numbers are in, and we do an update every month, it seems. Listen to this. Last month, April, there were 234,088 migrants encountered at the southern border, almost 235,000 apprehensions at the border last month, that per a DHS court filing yesterday. It is the highest single-month total in DHS history. The Department of Homeland Security was established after 9-11, so it's been about two decades. That is the record-shattering number over the course of that period of time. Now, if you go back further, before DHS, the Washington Examiner did that and found this, quote, the number of migrants encountered attempting to enter the United States illegally from Mexico rose in April, surpassing all previous records over the past century. So it's not just the last two decades, the last 20-some-odd years. It's the last century. This is historically disastrous down at the border. And I'll remind you, this is still before peak season. April's getting into it, but May, June, that's peak season. And you've got this Title 42 removal, that policy, one of the last tools left in the toolbox 
That's supposed to go away in a matter of days per the Biden administration. Now, of the 234,000-plus illegal immigrants encountered at the border in April, more than half of them, about 118,000, were processed and released into the United States. And a lot of that was done, well, all of that was done at taxpayer expense. The processing was done at our expense, and then in many cases, the bus rides, train rides, plane flights to cities of their choosing, as Jen Psaki said there, free to move about the country. They're free to travel. 118,000 people released into the country last month, illegal immigrants. That's the size of the entire city of Ann Arbor, Michigan. The entire population of Ann Arbor, Michigan, was released into the United States, that population of illegal immigrants. The largest city in Joe Biden's home state is Wilmington. That's 70,000. So this number dwarfs the largest city in the president's own state. Now, of those who were removed, it was 113,000. Almost all of them were expelled using Title 42. 97,000 expelled under Title 42, which is being jettisoned, which is being removed next week. This is terrible, but the worst is yet to come. And the worst could be a lot worse, even than this record-shattering number. Oh, and by the way, just another reminder, 235,000 encounters at the border. That does not include known gotaways which was over 60,000 in March. So tens of thousands of additional people entered the country in April. Now, it's just, it's just outrageous. Another hour coming up here on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Time for a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Just cracked open a fresh can of the program. I'm going to share it with all of you. Glad to have you here. Thank you very much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. GuyBensonShow.com. That's our website, GuyBensonShow.com, where the podcast is free on demand at the conclusion of every show, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. We're chugging towards 10,000 followers on the official show handle on Twitter. We're getting there, so help us. At Guy Benson Show, just give us a follow. You can also follow me personally, at Guy P. Benson, on both of those platforms. Later on this hour, Governor Glenn Youngkin will join me. Looking forward to that. Howie Kurtz in the next hour. First, a Fox News alert. With the Dow closing up 431 points, ending the day at 32,654. Well, look, I hesitate to do this, and I often hesitate to play audio from The View because that place is just nuts. That show is crazy. It is almost like a daily celebration of highly concentrated ignorance. 
where there's kind of an air of sophistication and know-it-allism when, in fact, it's almost know-nothingism over there. And some of the hosts are worse than others, I think we can say, when it comes to misinformation or lack of understanding. One of them who's been really shining recently in her ignorance is, what's her name, Sunny? Sunny Hostin, whose disposition seems often less than Sunny, just like someone else's disposition seems less than, shall we say, joyful over there. But Sonny made a point today on The View that I don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time refuting and, like, you know, punching over at at The View. But I think it represents what she said. She's, She's not an outlier here. She's not saying something totally out of left field. She is saying something that a lot of people on the progressive left and certainly in the news media, most of those people are on the progressive left, Truly believe. They think this is right. They think this is accurate about the polarization and the extremism of the two parties in this country. Here's what she said in Cut 25. Listen here. If you look at all the studies, the Republican Party has moved further to the right than Democrats have to the left. There's a Pew Research um, Center analysis that finds that on average, Democrats and Republicans are farther apart ideologically today than at any time in the past 50 years. And that ideological divide breaks down to the Republican Party being an extremist party. And the the Democratic Party actually, as you just mentioned, Sarah, moving more to the center. Ah, so actually another lady on set today wrongly said that what the Democrats are doing here is moving to the center. And the reason that Republicans and Democrats out there in America are farther apart than they have been in five decades is because the Republicans have raced so far out to the extreme right wing that even these centrist Democrats look by comparison left, even though they're just really center. And the gap is caused by the Republican extremism. Now, There are other studies and other data points that point in precisely the opposite direction. In fact, there was a liberal writer who went through at some length and explained how the polarization of the country and the culture wars are actually driven by the increasing extremism of the Democratic Party. Just the opposite. Now, set aside studies Because I think often it's garbage in, garbage out. These people find the outcome that they want to find. Let's think of it this way instead. Now, before we before I pose this to you, let me say something. I think there's a difference between policy extremism and then other forms of extremism, conspiracy related thinking, anti-institutional attacks, that kind of thing. And I would say, with all respect, The Republican Party has gotten crazier recently. They are a crazier party in terms of the way that they communicate and some of the things that the base values. That is different than a policy argument. I would also argue, and I would say, oh, this is both sidesism, but yes, it is both sides. The Democrats, while talking a big game about being the adults in the room and the defenders of norms and institutions, their base— And increasingly, their party assails and attacks our institutions with conspiracy theories and the like all the time when they don't get their way. 
right? Abolish the Electoral College, abolish the Senate, abolish the Supreme Court, or at least abolish the filibuster in the Senate to then destroy that institution and pack the Supreme Court, destroying that institution in the process, a two for one. Right? When institutions in this country stand in the way of left wing power, the rhetoric on the left increasingly is let's tear down that institution. Let's do some banana republic stuff so we can get our preferred policy and political outcomes. And there's a lot of conspiratorial thinking on the left. You look at the number of people who think that Trump stole the election in 2016 with the help of the Russians. They don't even believe the result in the Mueller report that there was no collusion. They can't bring themselves to believe that because it's an article of faith that it happened. A majority of Democrats after 9-11 thought that Bush, this is like towards the end of the Bush administration, a majority of Democrats in a poll that Politico wrote up believe that Bush knew about 9-11 in advance. I mean, crazy stuff, crazy. And there are similar nutty things that have taken deep root on the right as well, which led to January 6th, the birther stuff with Barack Obama. We're not in a great place, is my point. There's a lot of crazy out there. But policy-wise, let me ask you this. Can you name, and there might be an answer to this. I'm racking my brain off the top of my head. I'm struggling. But can you name a major policy area in which the Democratic Party in the last 10 years, let's say, has moved distinctly to the right from where they previously were? Can you name one? And feel free to to send me an answer. And there could be one or two. But on on a lot of the big stuff, I think, indisputably, the Democratic Party has moved leftward. Their so-called moderates today were the progressive liberals of not too long ago. And the progressive liberals of not too long ago are now way out there. They've got a large chunk of their party determined to defund the police and abolish prisons. And bail. There's a large chunk of their party. I would say probably majority at this point. That embraces an Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders view of the economy and what ought to be done. Canceling student loans, government funded health care for everyone with the government taking the whole thing over. They just all voted except for one of them or two of them on Capitol Hill for $5 trillion of new spending on top of all the emergency spending. They are way out there on the left economically. Then you get to social issues. Midway through Barack Obama's first term, the party was still officially against gay marriage. Now they're like, men can have abortions. That is a dramatic turn. They are way out there on the left on abortion. They have raced to the left on that issue. Gender identity, sexuality issues, environmental issues. I mean, immigration. The Democrats on policy have moved farther to the left than the Republicans who have gone right on some things and more centrist on others. That's my take. Sorry, Sonny. I'm Guy Benson. I saw this headline from Politico, and I actually laughed. Here's what they wrote, and I 
analyze it at townhall.com earlier today. Headline, Biden's new recipe for the midterms. Less honey, more vinegar. Jonathan Lemire wrote this, and he says, The fever didn't break, and for the White House, efforts at bipartisanship have finally taken a backseat. To the frustration of some of his closest aides, Biden had insisted on trying to work with the GOP, but now it's time to change course and attack. Oh, he's finally going to attack Republicans. At long last, Joe Biden is going to stop being Mr. Moderate Bipartisan Nice Guy, and he's going to start attacking the Republican Party. Because he hasn't been doing that at all for the first part of his presidency, right? We've all seen that. He's just been rainbows and butterflies and one big bipartisan outreach after another. What planet are these people on? I'm talking about the White House folks who are like, we really need to stop being so nice. And also the reporters and editors who wrote this. Like, oh, yes, wow. He's really going to pivot to attacking Republicans, a really novel, original concept. More from the story. To the frustration of many Democrats and some of his closest advisors, President Joe Biden has steadfastly spent more than a year in office insisting on trying to work across the aisle with Republicans. (laughs) Those efforts have been, quote, colored by a fair dose of in-your-face GOP obstructionism. Now, more than a year later, Biden no longer believes that most Republicans will eventually drop their fealty to Donald Trump and will show a willingness to engage. To many Democrats, the admission was long overdue. Even some in Biden's orbit had been urging a far more aggressive response. This is untethered from reality, all of this. He has not spent more than a year in office desperately, relentlessly trying to work across the aisle. He has not. There's bipartisanship on what, like two things I can think of. Ukraine, which has nothing to do with him, and basically everything to do with the evil of the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin. That's brought Americans together. Then there was the infrastructure bill, which senators on both sides worked on carefully. Biden actually almost derailed the whole thing by going along with the left-wing tie-it-to-build-back-better scheme. That held the whole thing hostage, she used the Democrats' terminology, for months, right? They had the votes, and the Democrats said, no, we're not going to bring it up in the House until we get the other trillions of unrelated spending that, thank God, failed. But Biden went with that. Biden went with the squad on that for a long time. So he almost torpedoed his number one bipartisan legislative accomplishment by bending to the left yet again, which is what he's done for his entire presidency. He is governed not from the center. He campaigned from the center, promised unity and healing and all of that stuff. That's how he won. That's what he said in his victory speech in Delaware a few days after the election back in November of 2020. And then he has run the government as if he is terrified of left-wing Twitter. And he has sided with the left and the squad And that element of the party over and over and over again, pandering endlessly to them at the expense of his more moderate members of his party and certainly at the expense of bipartisanship. They write about in-your-face GOP obstructionism. I mean, yes, the party that's not in power tends to be the opposition party, and opposition parties oppose. It's what they do by definition. They've worked with the Democrats on 
some big-ticket items like defense budgets and sending money to the Ukrainian military and a host of others, much of it relatively small ball at the margins, but there have been some under-heralded successes. But overall, on the big stuff, the big damaging left-wing stuff and insane spending, et cetera, the totally partisan agenda, Republicans have said no, which is what they did under Obama, which is what Democrats did under Bush. Democrats called it resistance under Trump. It's what the other party does. Republicans are totally locked out of power in Washington. It's not like in-your-face obstructionism. There's only so much they can even do. Part of the reason Democrats have wasted this trifecta to the extent that they have is because they can't get their own party on board for some of this stuff, which is why Manchin and Cinema threw a wrench into $5 trillion of additional federal wasteful spending. That would have been an inflation and debt bomb. They could have done that with a simple majority through reconciliation. They couldn't do it because the plans were so crazy. And they've tried ending the filibuster to take over federally our elections, that whole scheme. They wanted to extend abortion all the way to the moment of birth and put that into law. They just did that two weeks ago. What are they talking about, Joe Biden, just trying to be a moderate and work across the aisle and the Republicans are doing nothing but obstructing it. It's like they just kind of wrote this up, having woken up from a coma or something, with no awareness of what this presidency has actually looked like. And last but not least, can we please dispense with this joke that Joe Biden is just an aw shucks, happy warrior grandpa who's doing his best to reach across the aisle and it pains him and he's frustrated. But now he's finally going to start attacking Republicans. Give me a break. In 2012, in that campaign, he told a room filled with predominantly black supporters that Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan wanted to re-enslave them if they won that election. Put y'all back in chains, he said. Then there was this from the so-called voting rights controversy recently. This was a, a flashback to a couple months ago. Joe Biden, cut 31. Jim Crow 2.0 is about two insidious things, voter suppression and election subversion. It's no longer about who gets to vote. It's about making it harder to vote. It's about who gets to count the vote and whether your vote counts at all. Almost all of that is factually false. And Georgia's voter participation has gone way up after the law was implemented. And we've been following that and tracking that a lot on this show in recent days. Biden, during that same harangue, during that same period, compared opponents to the Democrats' radical takeover of elections, to segregationists, to Bull Connor, to Jefferson Davis, George Wallace, like hardcore racists. And also referred to those opponents, i.e. Republicans, as domestic enemies. So give me a break that Joe Biden has just been Mr. Nice Guy, refusing to really attack Republicans, but now he's going to take the gloves off. Like, sure. It is a total fantasy land that they've created for themselves here. And I say, fine. I'm sure the Republicans are saying, bring it on. If you're going to get a near octogenarian yelling and screaming as he... 
muddles and butchers his syntax, running around being angry, attacking the GOP while he's got a 39% approval rating, go for it. Go for it. What a brand new, amazing strategy. I'm sure it'll work. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. Governor Glenn Youngkin, Virginia, joins us after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. We're halfway through today's show. Thanks for being here. With us now is Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican from the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Governor, it's great to have you back on the program. Good afternoon, guys. So great to be with you. Thank you for having me. You bet. So I want to start on education, an issue that was central to your campaign. I saw a report the other day on the local NBC affiliate in Washington, D.C., and they were quoting... The Fairfax County Teachers Union, this is a a very blue county in northern Virginia, just outside D.C., for those who don't live around here. And the representative from the union was talking about a potential need to cancel school activities if there's an outbreak of COVID in schools, which would constitute three or more cases. This could affect proms, field trips, concerts, graduations. I just wonder, where's the line here where we stop canceling activities on children based on some positive tests? Well, I I think that what we've seen over the course of the last uh, year, particularly in Virginia, was when schools were were inappropriately closed for an extended period of time, the only thing it did was hurt the kids. And we've seen it over and over again. And of course, what what we have seen from an educational standpoint is that the learning loss was far worse uh, than it otherwise needed to be because of this uh, misbelief that by closing schools, we were doing someone a favor. And so the schools need to be open. They need to be open five days a week. They need to be open for extracurricular activities. And, uh, and the reality is that there is an extraordinary body of information that says that, that uh, any thoughts that closing schools uh, helps kids uh, is wrong. And uh, therefore, we're going to continue to be a strong voice in keeping schools open in Virginia and making sure that we're serving Virginia's kids and preparing them for life as opposed to disadvantaging them like happened uh, when the schools were were, uh, extendedly closed for for an unnecessary reason. Another very major campaign issue was crime. You were critical of your Democratic opponent on that front, wanting to bring a new approach, a little tougher on crime. You had a lot of endorsements from law enforcement There is an uptick in some violent crime in some areas in Virginia. I saw Justin Alexander the other day. There was a carjacking, fortunately foiled by a good guy with a gun, but still that's unnerving to a lot of people. What is the new approach that you're going to try to pursue here? What is your administration doing to take on this problem that has a lot of people nervous? Well, people should be nervous because we have a 20-year high in murder rate in Virginia. And we, in fact, find ourselves uh, you know, challenged by the fact that, one, we don't have a budget yet. And in that budget is increased funding for law enforcement, raises that they need and deserve. And, oh, by the way, people making decisions about staying in law enforcement or joining law enforcement absolutely has to be 
has to be reinforced by the fact we have a budget to pay them appropriately. And that's in our budget, and I can't quite get it out of the Senate yet because Senate Democrats are holding it up. Also in that budget is funding for uh, increased equipment and training and community programs to, f- to foster much more cooperative relationships with law enforcement. So we got to get a budget out. And once we get a budget out, we can go to work on a number of these most important issues, a lot of them around resourcing. But second of all, of course, what we're seeing now is that the, that the particular uh, violence and crime is really dedicated into some, into some um, real uh, concentrated urban areas. And there are cities in Virginia that are some of the most violent in the nation, sadly. Uh, Richmond, uh, Petersburg, Newport News, Hampton, Norfolk, Roanoke. Um, these, are, these are tough cities when it comes to violent crime today. And we've launched a violent crime task force where we, in fact, have, have been convening high-level meetings with leadership to make sure that we, in fact, are bringing together local resources, state resources, and federal resources uh, targeted towards really stopping uh, this violent crime. And we've already seen uh, uh, immediate actions taken where our state police uh, has been cooperating mightily uh, with the city of Petersburg. We've enhanced patrols. We're patrolling those most violent areas. And, uh, and while the crime doesn't stop overnight, uh, we are confident that an increased presence of law enforcement will, in fact, have the desired effect of bringing down the crime rate. Unfortunately, we are, we are marching against two years of terrible decisions that were made, um, where funding wasn't adequate, uh, if not defunded, where we've watched legal frameworks change, and we watched culture, uh, in fact, move against law enforcement. And so we, in fact, are changing all of that. And uh, Virginia is standing up for law enforcement. Uh, every single uh, law enforcement here across the Commonwealth knows that this administration, from the attorney general to the lieutenant governor to the governor's office and all of those that work, work with us, uh, have their back because they have ours. This is a critical moment in order to turn the tide on violent crime. Governor Yunkin, you were all over the news in recent weeks dealing with some of these mobs at the private homes of a number of Supreme Court justices who live across the river in Virginia. And I'm just wondering, in your mind, as someone who is a public official, what is the appropriate balance? What's the line on protected speech and free expression, which is fundamental in this country and a core right, versus intimidation of a public official? And does showing up at their home and doxing them, does that cross the line? Uh, And if so, were you surprised that the White House really couldn't bring itself to even condemn it in any sort of forceful way? Well, the line is very clear, particularly when it comes to judges. And uh, federal statute uh, couldn't be any more clear that picketing and parading in order to influence a judge at their home is illegal and punishable with up to a year in prison. And Governor Hogan in Maryland, uh, who also uh, has justices who reside in his state, and I uh, were, were, were very purposeful in our uh, request and calling on the attorney general to enforce the law. Um, it's wrong to be parading and picketing in front of these justices' homes, and, uh, and the law should be enforced. Um, we have co- cooperation between the local Fairfax County Police, the state police, and federal resources. Um, but the federal government has to enforce this law, and uh, I, I uh, called, on, called on Attorney General to do exactly that. We have 
substantial state resources that uh, are poised and ready to make sure that the justices' homes are protected. Um, and, oh, by the way, the demonstrators should go someplace else, in my mind, and exercise their First Amendment right. Um, I asked Fairfax County to set up a secure perimeter around our justices' homes, not to do anything other than to protect their homes and not to allow uh, demonstrators to picket and parade and try to influence judges, which is against the federal statute. There should absolutely be uh, ample uh, space and opportunity for folks to, uh, to uh, demonstrate their First Amendment right and to exercise their either, either support or um, lack of support for uh, whatever the justices are going to opine on in many topics. But it shouldn't happen in front of their home. It's against federal statute, and the attorney general needs to enforce it. Yeah, isn't that strange then to see this mealy-mouthed response from the White House, from the very top, where uh, the spokesperson at the time said the president had no view on the leak and no real view on going to a justice's house, even though, as you point out, it's against the law. She just said as long as it's peaceful, they just want to see it be peaceful. It, it seems like they're almost winking and nodding to, con- to encourage this kind of thing. Well, well, Guy, it's clear that this leak was done in order to cause chaos, in order to allow people and encourage people to try to influence justices. And this federal statute couldn't be any more clear. And uh, in Virginia, we're going to do everything that uh, we can uh, to keep keep uh, justices safe. As I said, we have substantial state uh, police resources at the ready yep. in order to make sure that our no, justices are enough. safe. Yeah, and look, you can do your part. Virginia, in my view, and Maryland shouldn't have to do this. This is the purview of the feds. They should be doing it. Everyone should be on the same page condemning it. And the fact that it's been kind of a split call on that, I think, is very unfortunate and a very bad precedent and does not portend great things in the future. Last question, Governor Yunkin. We have about a minute left. Inflation is the number one issue on the minds of voters, on the minds of Virginians, of course. There's only so much a state-level governor or government can do to try to alleviate some of that pain. There's a lot of forces at play, you know, sort of above your head, so to speak. But what is Virginia going to try to do here to provide maybe some relief to folks? Guy, I, I can't uh, counteract the, the continuous bad decision-making that is happening in Washington uh, from f- flooding uh, the system with free money all the way to just terrible energy policy, which has completely thrown into chaos our energy markets. Uh, but what I can do is work uh, with uh, legislative leaders and cut taxes. And we have a very unique moment in Virginia where we're expecting $14 billion more in the system than we thought we were going to have. And we can take a meaningful amount of that, $4 billion, to $5 billion and cut taxes. Uh, Excellent. And by the way, Governor, as a Virginia taxpayer, as we're up on a break here, I fully support this idea, not just in theory, but practically as well. Rooting for you on that front. Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia, our guest here. Back on the Guy Benson Show, we're just talking about education, among other things, with Governor Glenn Youngkin of Virginia. Here's an education story 
And it's a clip going viral, libs of TikTok, mind this one. It's a school board meeting out in Nevada, Clark County, which is the big county out there. And a parent, a mother, was very upset about something that her daughter was assigned as a freshman or sophomore in high school, a 15-year-old girl. So she got up to object to what had been assigned to her daughter, and she was cut off by the school board because by simply quoting the assignment, quoting the words from the assignment, the school board member said it was inappropriate and not suitable for a public meeting, which I think sort of underscores the whole point that the mother was trying to make. She's emotional. Here's how it all sounded in Cut 30. I'm going to read you an assignment given to my 15-year-old daughter at a local high school. This will be horrifying for me to read to you, but that will give you perspective on how she must have felt when her teacher required her to memorize this and to act it out in front of her entire class. I don't love you. It's not you. It's just I don't like your or any in that case. I cheated, Joe. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Excuse me. Excuse me. I, I don't. Thank you so much for your. Thank you for your uh, comment. Forgive me. I, we're not using profanity. Are you? Okay. The teacher this, this... required my daughter to read, memorize this, and read this pornographic material. Uh, excuse me. Please don't engage with the audience. Okay. Uh, sorry, so my please continue your public comment. Your your time is. You've got one one minute. In 19 seconds, um, I ask you simply, this is a public meeting. I asked for decorum, um, and I'm asking. If you don't want me to read it to you, what was that like for my 15-year-old daughter to have to memorize pornographic material? So there's some cutting out of the microphone along the way because someone in the audience starts getting involved because they cut the woman off after she, I guess, said two objectionable words that we bleeped out. Just a few seconds into reading aloud from this assignment. Now, you might say this woman is being overly sensitive. Maybe this is some sort of play in a drama class. We don't know the exact context of it. However, I think it is pretty revealing that the school board members are so uncomfortable by the words being spoken that they interject, they step in to stop this woman from reading these words out loud in the meeting. And her point is, if it's so unbearable and so embarrassing and so uncomfortable for us as adults to talk about, how did my young daughter feel being assigned this stuff? I guess she had to memorize this portion of whatever it was. So I'd say regardless of what you feel about the underlying lesson or what it might be, and if this woman is maybe overly concerned, I do think... Call me crazy, going way out on a limb here, but I do feel like if you're going to, as a teacher or in a school district, assign material in class to 15-year-olds, that material should be suitable for open discussion at a school board meeting. And if it's not, if it breaks decorum, is the word that she uses, if it's pornographic, if there's foul language, then maybe that might suggest or hint that whatever's being discussed in class or assigned in class, there might be a problem there. And maybe the mother, in this case, isn't out of her mind to raise this objection and to bring it publicly before the school board. Just one small skirmish 
in a wider battle right now in this country over what is happening in schools, what is being taught and assigned in schools, and what is appropriate and what role parents ought to have when it comes to these questions. Now, relatedly but separately, producer Christine, earlier on our phone call as we were planning the show, you told us about one of your friends in New Jersey whose daughter is in a public school in northern New Jersey. What is happening in that school right now? Uh, her entire, The girl's entire class, like the grade, is virtual again, back to virtual. Starting last week, there was two positive cases in the grade, so they put the whole grade back into virtual learning. They were told possibly this week they were going back to school. That did not happen, and as of today, she is still in virtual learning at home. So two kids tested positive. Correct. And we know that kids overwhelmingly have extremely mild cases, are very, 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 very unlikely to have severe cases or to get hospitalized or certainly to die. But because you had two kids in an elementary school grade test positive, they shut down the entire grade level for in-person learning, forced them all back home, and then dangled that they were going to come back and then extended it at least once already? Correct. And when I asked the mom, who is a friend of mine, what, what's happening for tomorrow, she said, we have no clue. She said, we're supposed to go back, but we, you know, that could change very quickly. This is just madness, and it is maddening. How much data do we need to show the adults in charge that virtual learning is a catastrophic disaster that does not work and that, in fact, harms kids? These kids have already been set back needlessly in so many places, especially places like New Jersey and other blue states. You would think that by now, May of 2022, even the holdouts who defended school closures for a year and a half would say, okay, we're throwing in the towel, but apparently not everyone. And I'm worried that as little mini blips and waves, even tiny ones like this come back, I've been telling you, I've been warning you on this show, there are some adults who are on hair-trigger alert, eager to send these kids back into failed virtual learning, out of safetyism, totally anti-science. I would almost say it's abusive. This comes very close in my mind to child abuse. And yet, according to our reporter on the ground, producer Christine, we have one example of it in New Jersey. It is not the only one. I guarantee you that. And let's just hope this doesn't catch on because it flies in the face of everything we know about this virus two-plus years in. Oh, it makes my blood boil. And I can imagine how those parents are feeling. Private schools or get out of the state. I mean, at some point, you must be at the end of your rope. Got to run. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Howie Kurtz will be here talking about the media, a couple big controversies. That's straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. The Tuesday Happy Hour is here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you on board to join us. 
GuyBensonShow.com is our online home. All the goodies related to the program are right there. GuyBensonShow.com, including the free podcast every day. Our social media account, it's the same handle for Twitter and Instagram, at GuyBensonShow. You can follow us there as well. And we remind you, of course, as we enter this final hour, that it is sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, which is really expanding in an exciting and rapid way. We will indeed have more details on that later this week. We have tentatively booked one of the founders of the Long Drink to share some of that news with the audience toward the end of the week, so we're excited for that. In the meantime, you can visit thelongdrink.com. That's where you can find out where they're sold near you, and that footprint is really expanding. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only, for that premium liquor and citrus soda combination that's so good, especially as it gets hot, which it's going to be doing certainly in the Northeast in the coming days. I'm seeing in the 90s in the D.C. and New York area coming up. Joining us now is Howie Kurtz, host of Fox News Channel's Media Buzz. That's every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern. He hosts the podcast Media Buzz Meter, foxnewspodcasts.com for that. You can also follow him on Twitter, at Howard Kurtz. And, Howie, it's great to have you back. Hello, Guy. I saw that you wrote up the Buffalo story and your column on the media response to the horrible shooting in upstate New York, this racist attack, and... I think everyone in this country, virtually every single person would agree that it is horrible and disgusting and inexcusable. The way that it has been covered certainly has captured your attention. Walk us through your argument and your observations in these last few days. Yeah, I wanted some time to think about it, not just produce a hot take. I mean, obviously, it is heartbreaking. I went to college in Buffalo. This guy goes into a black neighborhood. It is just... There is also just a sense of we've been through so many of these. But what I wanted to say that maybe is a little bit different, maybe not everybody will agree with me, is I have been watching these mass shootings, like the rest of the country, you know, since Columbine. And there is a moment where people on the left and the right, and both sides have done it, and I cite examples in the column, wait to see, well, what is the political philosophy of the person who is the accused shooter? Uh, I mean, when the Oklahoma City federal building was blown up. President Clinton blamed in part Rush Limbaugh. That's how long this has been going on. And so, you know, there's a legitimate debate about immigration. And then there's this great replacement theory, which is pure conspiratorial hogwash. Uh, And what bothers me is because this guy, I'm not going to use his name because I don't like to glorify these people, um, you know, posted this 180 page screed. It was clear that he is not just out and out racist, but anti-Semitic. Uh, and wanted to kill as many people as he could. But somehow that got morphed into anybody who's ever talked about, quote, great replacement theory, as opposed to, you know, the political impact of uh, increasing immigration, is to blame for this. A lot of attacks on Fox, on the rival cable channels, every hour attacks on Fox. And uh, I just think that that is classic guilt by association. There is nobody at Fox who supports political violence. And by the way, in all of these pages, there is no indication that this guy even watched Fox or any show on Fox. Well, and I believe part of the screed were some materials that attacked people who work at Fox. So it doesn't seem like he was some great fan of the network, but that isn't really the point to me. The point seems to be this is an opportunity to attack bogeymen 
for political reasons that people want to attack anyway, and this is just a potent club to grab and start pounding away. I know that's a cynical view, but I think that it's undeniable, and we see this happen time and again. And, Howie, I think it's really important to focus in on something that you just said. There is a distinction between this racist conspiracy theory that there are elites purposely bringing in people from other parts of the world to dilute our population and make it less white or whatever. That's crazy town and sick. And as you say, no one here even comes close to talking about or endorsing that sort of thing, or or at least that type of theory. That is separate and apart from an analysis of illegal immigration, changing demographics in this country. I mean, Democrats talk about this all the time, saying, oh, look, you know, the demographics are shifting and and we're going to be a majority minority state in a number of states soon. And then over time, the country will be majority minority. And that's going to benefit the Democrats, they've said, although they're a little bit less excited about that these days, the way Hispanics have been trending politically. But this is something that they triumphantly proclaim a lot. I don't think that is fair to accuse them of promulgating the great replacement theory. It's just sort of a spinoff of an overall demographics conversation, some of which is legitimate and fair to discuss, Mm -hmm. some of which is crazy and out of bounds. And it just seems like people are trying to conflate all of it for the purpose of political attack. The the scoring of political points on this I find profoundly depressing. And, you know, it tends the media, negative media coverage, in this case you've got a number of uh, high-ranking Democratic officials who are also using the occasion to whack Fox. Um, it doesn't go the other way uh, at all. So five years ago, when an out-and-out liberal Bernie Sanders supporter, Rachel Maddow-loving uh, person uh, attacked that Virginia congressional Republican baseball practice, badly wounding Steve, Steve Scalise and others, um, you didn't have all this hand-wringing about, well, you know, this shows you that liberals uh, – are more prone to do this. It was just seen as a crazy guy. But in this particular instance, this person is clearly mentally ill and sick and twisted and a hater. Um, you have this unleashing, none of which, first of all, it's it's blood on your hands. It's guilt by association. Second of all, none of us brings us one centimeter closer to dealing with the problems of how do the mentally ill get guns? Is there more that we could do? Uh, how can we protect, you know, everything from supermarket? I mean, look, there have been mass murders in supermarkets, in hotels, in nightclubs, in elementary schools, in high schools. Now, President Biden gave a pretty emotional uh, speech today about this. Obviously, he suffered some loss and he went to Buffalo. But at the same time, he's given those speeches before Barack Obama gave very eloquent speeches uh, about after the Charleston church shooting, for example. And nothing seems to change. And it seems like a lot of the people with the big platforms are too interested in using this for hyperpartisanship. Yep. And we see on the left a lot of the time when Republicans or conservatives push any policy, even if it's something as anodyne as a tax cut, leftists and Democratic politicians rush out and their media allies amplify the talking point that this is going to kill people. People are going to die and suffer because of these Republican policies. And then you get someone who takes up a gun and tries to murder a bunch of Republican members of Congress. I said very clearly and explicitly at the time, let's not blame a political party or a political movement because one of its adherents decided to do something completely crazy and murderous. That's not fair. That's not how we should do things in this country. And yet that is what 
always seems to happen when the shoe is on the other foot. And I don't remember Mitch McConnell dashing off a cease and desist letter to MSNBC saying your anchors need to stop repeating these ugly talking points about Republicans because it's going to get people killed and it is inspiring and inciting political violence and you've got blood on your hands and you know, all of that type of yeah, thing that right. we're seeing in the media and then this letter from Schumer that he sent to Fox. I mean, I would have criticized McConnell if he had done something like that, yeah, except it is de rigueur. Too. It is de rigueur on the left. One other quick infamous example, of course, was the blaming of Sarah Palin when a mentally ill guy in Arizona a badly wounded uh, Congresswoman, then Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, killed six other people, uh, and she had this political map out with crosshairs. The guy never even saw it. He was insane. And then even the New York Times got, ended up uh, getting taken to court by Sarah Palin for trying to hang that on her, which was ludicrous. And some of what we're seeing now is ludicrous as well. One more thing briefly on this front, Howie. You said in this interview that you didn't want to name the alleged shooter up in Buffalo. That's my policy as well. I think that some of these people have a a sick, twisted idea that they're going to go down in history for some reason. And I think we should deny them that. I think we should focus on the victims. We read every one of their names on the show Mm -hmm. yesterday. What is the balance in terms of the newsworthiness of a photograph or the image of an alleged mass killer? What's the correct way for the media to cover the name and the image of that person? And when does it become sort of playing into the weird delusions of grandeur of someone like that? What's the balancing act that you think would be responsible? Yeah, well, we don't have to guess in this case because the guy was live streaming the attack. I mean, look, yes. it's a very fine line. Obviously, in the opening days, particularly if somebody's at large, certain news shows, I don't have any problem with saying that police have arrested or are looking for the chief suspect, uh, and you want to know a little bit about him. For example, it's noteworthy to know that he underwent a psychiatric evaluation in high school after he talked about uh, a murder-suicide, and yet he was never put on a list uh, under New York state law to deny him guns. On the other hand, you know, once the initial information has been put out there, I, I would do exactly what you're doing. Focus on the victims. Focus on the larger issues. Stop trying to understand where they wrong and went wrong in their childhood. I don't care. I don't care what the motivation was. The motivations don't add up anyway. Uh, and and not you because the more that you broadcast that, more that you amplify that, you could inspire someone else to uh, into some kind of copycat crime. Yep, and I do worry very much about that. I think some of the details are certainly newsworthy. We're learning that apparently in a chilling development, it looks like this guy scoped out this exact location months ago and was behaving extremely suspiciously to the point that a security guard stopped him to ask him questions, and he skedaddled and then came back months later and wreaked this havoc and this violence upon totally innocent people. I think getting a complete picture of what happened and why, that's fine. Doing the who, what, where, when, and why, especially at the beginning, that's fine. I think we should try collectively to limit the amount of attention that could be interpreted by sort of a a sick mind as glorification. Because there are some other people out there, I'm sure, watching this with a type of interest that is disturbing. And I think that not fueling any of these thoughts in other people, that should be part of the consideration as we make these decisions in coverage, speaking collectively, we as in the news media. Howie, on a separate note, it was day number one yesterday, day number two today officially, for the new White House press secretary. Jan Psaki is off to 
another network. She's going to work in cable news uh, along with another former spokesperson from this administration, Simone Sanders. She's at the same network, MSNBC. Corrine Jean-Pierre is the new chief press secretary at the White House. Just some reflections on Saki's tenure and what Jean-Pierre, what we might expect from her. Well, you know, overall, I have to say, Jen Psaki did her job to the great frustration of most of the press, which is she very uh, allowed it to get heated in the briefing room. I mean, sometimes she would get a little uh, – she told me in an interview I did with her last week that she's an Irish lass at heart. Sometimes mm-hmm. she would be biting her tongue. Uh, I think she won the respect of the press corps, including our, our Peter Ducey. Um, and, you know, when she needed to span or obfuscate, you know, she did that because that's also part of the job. Now, I've met Kareem Jean-Pierre only briefly. People who work with her tell me she's a lovely person. But before Saki left, at her next-to-last briefing, she had to clean up a mess for her successor, which is a bunch of old tweets that talked about the 2016 election being stolen, the 2018 uh, gubernatorial election in Georgia being stolen, as well as attacks on Fox. And it was an interesting, I guess, to kind of wipe the slate clean. For Jean-Pierre, that Jen Psaki decided to address that in, in a lengthy statement. Um, but as far as how she will handle the press corps, whether uh, she'll make as much news, whether the briefings will be taken live, uh, all remains to be seen. This is only her second day. Last but not least, Elon Musk has been tweeting up a storm. Some people wondering, is there maybe trouble on that deal mm-hmm. to acquire Twitter? We're seeing another prominent multi-billionaire weighing in more forcefully than he has in the past. Jeff Bezos of Amazon really leaning into the debate over inflation, blaming the Biden administration to a a fairly significant degree. Have you been interested or surprised by any of that? Uh, I think that uh, one of the richest men in the world who owns a rocket company may be a TCB jealous of all the other attention going to the other (laughs) one of the richest man who owns a rocket company because he doesn't usually tweet that much. And, you know, he's been going back and forth with the White House about inflation. And, you know, when Biden Mm -hmm. tweeted without even mentioning Amazon that the wealthiest corporations should pay their fair share, you know, he said that, you know, Biden was to blame for inflation and the White House spokesman hit back at him and Bezos hit back at them. And I think he wants to be in the game. Meanwhile, Elon Musk, who has 90 million followers on Twitter compared to about 4 million for Bezos, uh, I'm taking a little bit more seriously the idea that he might be trying to back out. Originally, I mean, he just tweeted the other day, um, the deal will not go forward until he's satisfied about how many fake and spam accounts there are. I just thought that was, you know, negotiation, trying to get the price down because Twitter's stock is really uh, plunged. But I'm now seeing a, a bit of an escape route or off ramp for him if that's what he wants. But it is, you know, Biden has beaten up on Amazon a lot because Amazon has paid a very low federal tax rate. Bezos, uh, according to one investigative report, didn't pay any personal federal taxes in a couple of years. So it's a way to engage. uh, And that's what Bezos is doing. Yeah, we're watching it. It's interesting. And you might be right. You might be onto something about the Elon Musk pronouncements on this platform that he might be acquiring or maybe not. I guess we'll see. Howie Kurtz. Media Buzz every Sunday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. You can catch his podcast, Media Buzz Meter, in the interim. Howie, always enjoy it. Thank you so much for your time. Me too. Thanks, Guy. And the happy hour continues right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Guy Benson Show happy hour. And I want to shout out our friends over at Gutfeld, exclamation point. 11 p.m. Eastern every weeknight on Fox News Channel. Greg and Kat and Tyrus and that whole crew are just crushing it. The ratings came out for last week. 
and Gutfeld was alone by far in first place in late-night television. When you look at the ratings from May 9th through 15th, Gutfeld comes in at number one, averaging 1.946 million viewers a night. Jimmy Kimmel in second place, lagging hundreds of thousands of viewers behind. Stephen Colbert comes in third place on The Late Show. Jimmy Fallon in The Tonight Show in fourth place. And then ahead of Seth Meyers on NBC in the fifth slot is Shannon Bream on Fox News, the Fox News at Night crew. So hats off to both of them. And it's just awesome to see that show succeeding. The studio is great. The audience energy is amazing. They do things differently than all the other shows. It's not just warmed over leftism, group therapy for liberals every night, which is what it seems to be on some of these other shows. By the way, Trevor Noah is like way, way down. Trevor Noah's got 200,000 viewers. That show, The Daily Show, is a shell of what it once was. But when they introduce Greg every night to the audience when he comes out as the new king of late night, it's not even an exaggeration. He's in first place. And last week it was by a long shot. And it was very cool to be just a small part of that success. I was on Wednesday's show last week, which had more than 2 million viewers. Originality and being different from the pack certainly has its advantages, as does not being just insipidly predictable all the time. Keep it up. The Gutfeld team putting the exclamation point on Gutfeld exclamation point. 11 p.m. Eastern Time every weekday, Fox News Channel. I'm back on the calendar in early June. Looking forward to it. Good job, guys. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. It is our happy hour here on this Tuesday from Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening. In our last hour, we caught up with Governor Glenn Youngkin, a Republican of Virginia. A lot to get to with him. We touch on a number of subjects. Here's part of that discussion with Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin. So I want to start on education, an issue that was central to your campaign. I saw a report the other day on the local NBC affiliate in Washington, D.C., And they were quoting the Fairfax County Teachers Union. This is a a very blue county in northern Virginia, just outside D.C., for those who don't live around here. And the representative from the union was talking about a potential need to cancel school activities if there's an outbreak of COVID in schools, which would constitute three or more cases. This could affect proms, field trips, concerts, graduations, I just wonder, where's the line here where we stop canceling activities on children based on some positive tests? Well, I think that what we've seen over the course of the last year, particularly in Virginia, was when schools were were inappropriately closed for an extended period of time, the only thing it did was hurt the kids. And we've seen it over and over again. And, of course, what, we've, what we have seen from an educational standpoint is that the learning loss was far worse uh, than it otherwise needed to be because of this uh, misbelief that by closing schools, we were doing someone a favor. And so the schools need to be open. They need to be open five days a week. They need to be open for extracurricular activities. And, uh, and the reality is that there is an extraordinary body of information that says that, that uh, any thoughts that close Closing schools uh, helps kids uh, is wrong, and uh, therefore we're going to continue to be a strong voice 
in keeping schools open in Virginia and making sure that we're serving Virginia's kids and preparing them for life as opposed to disadvantaging them like happened uh, when the schools were, were uh, extendedly closed for, for an unnecessary reason. Another very major campaign issue was crime. You were critical of your Democratic opponent on that front, wanting to bring a new approach, a little tougher on crime. You had a lot of endorsements from law enforcement. There is an uptick in some violent crime in some areas in Virginia. I saw Justin Alexander the other day. There was a carjacking, fortunately foiled by a good guy with a gun, but still that's unnerving to a lot of people. What is the new approach that you're going to try to pursue here? What is your administration doing to take on this problem that has a lot of people nervous? Well, people should be nervous because we have a 20-year high in murder rate in Virginia. And we, in fact, find ourselves uh, you know, challenged by the fact that, one, we don't have a budget yet. And in that budget is increased funding for law enforcement, raises that they need and deserve. And, oh, by the way, people making decisions about staying in law enforcement or joining law enforcement absolutely has to be has to be reinforced by the fact we have a budget to pay them appropriately. And that's in our budget, and I can't quite get it out of the Senate yet because Senate Democrats are holding it up. Also in that budget is funding for uh, increased equipment and training and community programs to, f- to foster much more cooperative relationships with law enforcement. So we got to get a budget out. And once we get a budget out, we can go to work on a number of these most important issues, a lot of them around resourcing. But second of all, of course, what we're seeing now is that the that the particular uh, violence and crime is really dedicated into some into some um, real uh, concentrated urban areas, and there are cities in Virginia that are some of the most violent in the nation. Sadly, uh, Richmond, uh, Petersburg, Newport News, Hampton, Norfolk, Roanoke. Um, these are these are tough cities when it comes to violent crime today. And we've launched a violent crime task force, where we in fact have have been convening high level meetings with leadership to make sure that we, in fact, are bringing together local resources, state resources, and federal resources uh, targeted towards really stopping uh, this violent crime. And we've already seen uh, uh, immediate actions taken where our state police uh, has been cooperating mightily uh, with the city of Petersburg. We've enhanced patrols. We're patrolling those most violent areas. And uh, and while the crime doesn't stop overnight, uh, we are confident that an increased presence of law enforcement will, in fact, have the desired effect of bringing down the crime rate. Unfortunately, we are, we are marching against two years of terrible decisions that were made um, where funding wasn't adequate, uh, if not defunded, where we've watched legal frameworks change, and we watched culture, uh, in fact, move against law enforcement. And so we, in fact, are changing all of that. And uh, Virginia is standing up for law enforcement. Uh, every single uh, law enforcement here across the Commonwealth knows that this administration, from the attorney general, to the lieutenant governor, to the governor's office, and all of those that work work with us uh, have their back because they have ours. This is a critical moment in order to turn the tide on violent crime. Governor Yunkin, you were all over the news in recent weeks dealing with some of these mobs at the private homes of a number of Supreme Court justices who live across the river in Virginia. And I'm just wondering, in your mind, As someone who is a public official, what is the appropriate balance? What's the line on protected speech and free expression, which is fundamental in this country and a core right, versus intimidation of a public official? 
My full interview with Governor Glenn Youngkin and also the entirety of today's show available as usual online at GuyBensonShow.com as part of our free podcast on demand, no charge every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, we think that we have a new job description. Her producer, Christine, here at Fox, maybe even Fox Corporate. Is she up for a big promotion? We'll debate that next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks very much for being here. Every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, so we're almost done for the day. If you missed any of the show, our podcast is free, on demand, right at your fingertips, 24-7, shortly after the show ends every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, wherever you get your podcasts. So this story was interesting. From the Wall Street Journal, so we know who found this entry for today's topics, Quiet Wyatt, who reads the paper cover to cover in, like, the old hard copy edition. Every morning at 4.30 a.m., as soon as it arrives, he will chastise the delivery man for being late. Like, it's 4.41, where have you been? In any case, the story in the journal is about major companies hiring someone into the position of chief happiness officer. You've heard of CEO. You've heard of CIO. You've heard of CFO. There are all these titles. Well, this is CHO, chief happiness officer. I guess to what? Make sure that the employees have good morale and people are feeling pleasant, copacetic back in the office after so many people were gone for so long due to COVID and all of the shutdowns and work-from-home stuff. So I guess this is a trend, and the trend was spotted by this newspaper, wrote up the piece. Am I getting this basically correct, that it's just sort of like a morale-boost person to make sure that the workforce is feeling good and is generally satisfied back in the office? Why am I – I only briefly skimmed the story. That is correct, Guy. Okay, thank you very much. It's very – nothing but business there. For Wyatt. So our thought was, the whole purpose of this conversation was, what if not even Fox Radio, not even Fox News generally, what about Fox Corporate, Big Fox? What if they need a chief happiness officer? Could a certain member of our team perhaps apply for and get the gig? And of course, I'm referring to YY the Clown who would roam the halls, probably up in New York at headquarters, making little balloon figures for everyone. He pops in every day and makes a giraffe for Rupert, his favorite. I mean, I can see that. But if that weren't to work out, for whatever reason, I think it would be a slam dunk hire, what about cookie producer Christine, who we have described on this show as sort of like the resident court jester here? where sometimes I'll be sitting here behind the microphone on my throne. I'll summon her. She'll come dancing in. Big fake grin plastered on her face, even if she's having a bad day. That big smile's there, even if there are tears trickling down her cheek, and she'll do some 
dances and some jokes, do some slapstick humor. And then if she's entertaining, she gets to live to see another day. Just to make sure that I don't extend my arm and then slowly pull the thumb down. And then it's off to the gallows. And we haven't come to that point yet here. Virtually speaking, of course, it's all just a a metaphor. We're not actually sending Cookie away. But what if she could serve in that capacity for the entire company? What if she could bring her special blend of joy, humor, and neuroses to all of Fox? Fox Nation, if you will. This is what we got talking about, and we wasted quite a lot of time on the phone call today, the planning call about this. Christine, are you preparing your resume? I think I could do this, but listen, I just looked it up. There are 10 main tasks that a chief happiness officer has to do day to day. I'm going to read them to you, okay. and you're going to tell me All right. if this is something that I can do. I like this. I have not seen these because I did no preparation for this segment whatsoever. Go. Making sure employees feel valued. Oh, and I would like Wyatt to weigh in on this. I would say yes. I think you're good sort of as a hype person. The way this got started, by the way, is we were talking earlier about Gutfeld and how they have a hype person who gets the audience all amped up for the show. And you were saying, I think I could do that. And then Wyatt went back into his encyclopedic memory and remember, this was the seventh story that he read start to finish in the journal this morning. He said, maybe we can blend these two topics. We can merge them into a home stretch. So I would say yes on number one. Okay, next. Uh, guarantee the basics. Uh, for employees to be motivated in their work, the first thing they need is good salary and good working conditions. I'd fight for you, anybody, to get good money. Yeah, my worry is you might start making promises that you can't keep. You're like, oh, yeah, they'll totally double your salary. And then you'll dance away, and then that person will feel all confident and call up HR and get laughed at. But isn't that a good thing? Like, if I said, like, listen, if you work hard, you're going to make more money. Like, it gives people hope. Hmm. I just think that expectations management might be important when it comes to happiness not just happiness in the moment but there needs to be a payoff too or else you'll have no credibility on the happiness front it's like oh "Oh, she just feeds a a pack of happy lies and dances away you would be wearing a jester outfit by the way with that long sort of hat thing with a bell dangling from it yep oh you you they'd hear you coming not just your voice i'm not an elf in fact the bells no it'd be like an elf and the bells would come jingling towards you and then that could give people plenty of warning to like scatter, you know, and hide if they actually had to get work done. Okay, number three. Listening to employees. Um, They have, some companies have a happiness traffic light and they check in once a week with the employees to see, you know, what color they're at. And if they're having problems, I would listen to them. First of all, I hate that. Oh, I'm a yellow today. Uh, I don't like that. And I feel like you might get dragged down because you get very nervous about things. So someone could say, I'm having a red moment. For these reasons, I think it could affect your overall job performance because you would then start worrying about your own job and security and other totally unrelated things. Like, oh, you know, I'm really struggling at work because my parent is very sick with this rare disease. And you'll be like, 
okay as you look down on your phone and start Googling WebMD yes. for this disease because now you're convinced that you have it. As uh, my therapist Roy says, that's called spiraling. Yeah. Oh, no, you're a spiraler. Thank you. You could be a chief spiraling officer. Make everyone feel better about themselves. You wear the same costume, by the way. It's the same, it's the same uniform for both positions. I just made that up. All right, number four. We're never going to get through these. I let's, know. Let's, let's bang these out. Yeah, here. I'm just going to re- read the list, and then you tell me. Value day-to-day work. Five, you okay. grant freedom. Six, oh, support boy. growth. Seven, help manage time. Eight, create a positive work environment. Nine, encourage teamwork. And 10, empower employees. I think you could probably do most of those. Now, granting freedom, I'm not sure, because as we know on this conservative show, our rights come from God, not from government or cookie. So I'm not really sure if you're going to be granting freedoms. And I think that you could sort of, you know, there'd be a sense of camaraderie and unity around making fun of you. As we saw earlier this week, like the boss's boss called you and suggested that you wear a mask for the rest of time in the office, not for public safety or public health reasons, but just like a volume control measure. Right. You know what? Like and Wyatt was chuckling at that joke all the way up to seven layers above Wyatt. We all found that funny. Mm. You know what? I'm I'm about to be a yellow light right now. Oh, you got a yellow light? But here's the last thing I want to do is these are the questions that a chief happiness officer would ask an employee. So imagine I come to you, okay? Right. So hang on. I wish we had the little sound effect for the jingle bells. Walk in. Okay, here she comes. You try to quickly escape. You realize there's only one exit to the studio, and all of a sudden you're in the doorway. And so you're trapped, and then you ask what? Okay. First... I would say to you, hi, Guy Benson, you know, host of the powerful Guy Benson show. See, I'm motivating. I'm, I'm empowering yeah. you. Very, very empowering. Yeah. Um, in what mood were you in when you started work today? See, I would just literally have a sign that said green light, and I would just hold it up whenever you showed up. Like, see, we're done. Do we check the box? Um, no, because don't forget, the no, the chief, the CHO has to check in. So now I'm going to say to you as you're leaving, um, what mood are you leaving in today, Guy Benson, host of the big Guy Benson show? <laughs> I think I would just try to say green every single day. You wouldn't check on everyone. That's my job. Thousands of people. There's thousands of people at the company. Like, you have to go over – remember, you've got it for the whole corporate Fox. you got Fox Sports. You're out in L.A., 20th Century Fox. You're talking to movie stars. I mean, there's plenty of people. I think if we see you once a year at the Guy Benson show, we would be so blessed just to see you once a year. And then I'd probably – after I talk to them, I'd probably end with a joke. Would you like to know a joke that I would leave you with so you could chuckle? Yeah, in fact, because we're out of time, so let's just leave us all with a joke and – you're auditioning here, obviously. Okay. What is a pirate's favorite letter? Is it R? You might think it's R, but his first love is the C. See, there you go. It's, it's a twist that no one saw coming. Wyatt is delighted by that joke. Wyatt 
threw his head back and laughed at that joke with a big clap. See, look at the joy you're already bringing. I made Wyatt war Wyatt happy. There you go. The end. Mic drop. He forgot about Ukraine for just six seconds. It's very special. Chief Happiness Officer, Producer Christine. I don't know. We would hate to lose you. But if it has to be for the happiness of this company, then so be it. we got to run. Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. Have a great night. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on Outkick.com forward slash watch. Listen to the show ad free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.